awkward transition. Okay. Um, if you were here last week, we were in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, uh, and in it it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And in the midst of that sermon, I made a statement that I want to make sure everyone is clear on what I meant by it. Um, I said last week, as I have many times uh, in preaching, that I know that there are things that I'm teaching that I'm wrong about. Okay? Uh, and I hope that I clarified what I meant by that statement, but uh, I want to say that on my drive home, uh, one of my sons said to me, uh, how come you said that you lie to the church? <laughs> so, so maybe I didn't clarify enough. I want to explain for young years or older ears that may have been confused by my statement. God's word is perfect. It is without error. Paul says it is living, or uh, the writer of Hebrews says it is living, it is active. Um, Paul says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Peter says no um, uh, person, no prophet wrote of his own hand, but God, the Holy Spirit, moved through them and wrote through them. So it is inerrant. It's perfect. It's without error. And as I study it, I understand that I am not that. I have limitations and even blindness in certain things. And honestly, I have bias, as we all do. And so I know that those things affect a person's understanding and preaching of the word. And so I don't want to even entertain the thought that I'm preaching his word perfectly, that I'm right about everything. And when I come to texts that I have believed one thing and I'm studying and the Lord reveals to me I was wrong and my um, beliefs on that specific doctrine change, I come and I I admit that. I correct that. I seek to be humble and quick to listen, quick to correct errors. But I certainly don't think he's opened my eyes to every single thing that I'm wrong about in the Scriptures. And so that is my point in that. Uh, not that I know. I'm certainly not intentionally preaching wrong things to you. Um, I want to be right in my preaching. I want to be um, accurate in my preaching always. But I know that I am human and I am a broken, bad vessel that the Lord graciously uses for his glory and honor and for the proclamation of the word. So I hope that makes sense. But as we were ending the sermon last week, I gave some points to encourage obedience and submission. And one of those was to pray. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. The writer of Hebrews focuses on that in these next two verses. We're going to look just at verses 18 and 19 of chapter 13. So go ahead and stand. Follow along as I read those two verses. Hebrews 13, 18 and 19. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. 
Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Lord, you say through the prophet Isaiah, this is the one on whom you will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at your word. Would you help us right now to be those people? Be people who are humble, be people who are contrite in spirit, and to be people who truly tremble at the word of God. We know that in that, you will be honored and glorified. And so we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. He starts verse... 18, pray for us, pray for us. The writer is requesting that the body that he is writing to pray for him and for his fellow workers in ministry. One of the ways that a body can submit to their leaders and honor them is by praying specifically for them. Now before we get into the details of praying for your leaders, I want to look at the rest of what the writer says here. For we're sure, he says, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. My conscience is clear, he says. Now that's interesting, right? Because often when people are troubled or uncertain, that's when they call out for prayer. That's when they desire prayer. That's when they ask for prayer. That's when we think they actually need prayer. But I want to encourage you in that. Don't wait for difficulty to come or trouble to come to pray for your leaders. Pray. When you would say that their conscience is clear and things are well with them, pray. Pray for them. We're to pray for our leaders out of love and faith. Pray for us. For we're sure that we have a clear conscience. He goes on. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. I urge you earnestly. You feel the weight of, of his desire for their prayer. Our consciences are clear. And we urge you the more earnestly. Pray. Pray for us. We're desperate. We're desperate for the Lord's help. Not for our own strength, but for His strength. He writes, showing that he believes that without prayer, his hopes, his desires, won't be fulfilled, at least to the schedule that he would like them to be fulfilled. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Pray, pray earnestly so that I can come to you even sooner. Now here's sometimes confusing and difficult point as it pertains to prayers. It's confusing and difficult for me. Maybe it is for you too. The writer here is saying he believes that if they fail to pray... His return to them may be slowed or possibly not even take place. 
he's expressing that their prayers will speed his restoration to them. He believes prayer will change his circumstance. And so I want to take a moment and talk about that before we move on to how should we pray for our leaders. What is the balance of believing that God is absolutely sovereign, which I do, and God's command for us to pray? Ask for Him to do things. Does prayer actually change circumstances? Does prayer actually change things? So first of all, let's define what what we mean by God's sovereignty. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign over all things. That there is not one thing outside of His rule. And that is good. Not one thing outside of His control. Proverbs 16.33 The law is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now think about that. The lot is cast in the lap, and it's every decision is from the Lord. That would be the same as writing today, the dice are thrown, but their every turn and every result is from the Lord. Solomon chose this literally most random act. There's there's nothing more random than casting a lot or throwing dice. And says, even that belongs to God. Even that is within His control. It cannot turn apart from His will. It will be what He desires and wills it to be. Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. That's sovereignty. That's absolute control. It's similar to what Daniel says to the king three times in Daniel 4. So that you may know, or until you know, the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That's true in Daniel's day, and it's true in our day. He is absolutely sovereign over those things. And so if those things are true, and the Bible is filled with scriptures that affirm that. Then why pray? Isn't God going to do whatever he wills? And what we learn in scripture is that God desires for his people to pray. Now that alone, just think about that. That alone is reason to pray. Imagine that. The king of the universe, of whom those verses we just read are true. He's 
He's absolutely sovereign over you and over me and over every single thing that that God would say to you, I want you to ask. I want you to pray. I want you to come into my presence. I invite you. That's weighty, and that's wonderful. And that's reason. That alone is reason to come and pray. He desires and he uses prayer to fulfill his plans. Now, personally, I don't think God is changing his mind when we pray for something. Rather, I think he uses his people in the process and builds faith in us through it. It's like an illustration that I heard once. If you're on a boat deep into waters and you throw from that boat an anchor that attaches itself to the shore, and you begin to pull on that rope, it could and would appear that you are pulling the shore closer to yourself. As you visualize it, it looks like as you're working and you're pulling, that shore is getting closer and closer, and you're actually pulling the shore closer to yourself. But we know that's not the case. The shore doesn't move. It can't. It's faithful. It's steady. It's secure. Now, what's happening when you do that is the boat is getting closer and closer and closer to the shore. And that's the way we ought to think of prayer. As we pray, we're not pulling God toward our will. Rather, we're getting closer and closer and closer and closer to Him. And as that happens more and more, our wills conform to His will. And we begin to pray more and more for the things that He would desire, not just that we would desire. Now, that doesn't mean we don't pray things that we don't know whether they are His will or not. We pray. We pray. And we ask. And we entrust ourselves to a very, very gracious God. But we learn in the midst of that to trust His unfailing love and His sovereign grace. And so how then should we pray? How should we pray specifically for our leaders? I want to offer four ways this morning that you can pray for your leaders. I know that this is, this is just meant to assist. This is not a complete list, but just as a way of starting and using the, the text and scriptures to guide us. Four ways to pray for your leaders. First, pray for their care. Pray for their care. I want to start with this because that's what we see with the writer of Hebrews here. Pray for us, for we're sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this, to pray, in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. His desire is to be restored to them, to see them, 
to be with them. It's clearly this relationship that he has with this body. He asked them to pray more earnestly in order that that may happen sooner. It's good to pray for the care and even the wants of your leaders. What is the desire of their hearts? What are their genuine needs in life? In what ways do they need God's care specifically for their circumstances? You see that here in this verse. You're not, you're not going to copy this prayer. You're not going to write this in, in your prayer journal and, and just repeat exactly what it says for Taylor, right? You're not going to pray for Taylor, your leader, and say, Lord, we just... We just beg you that he would be restored to us. No, he's, he's here, right? So you don't have to copy this exact prayer, but what are the needs? What are the, what are the ways that he, he needs God's care in his life? It's good for you to know and to pray for those things. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, he delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. I love this text as it concerns prayer. Paul is asking for prayer for a specific area of need. It's an area of God's care for them that is needed. And so he asks. But when you look at verse 11, as we consider the balance between God's sovereignty and prayer, why does he say that they they help in prayer? Why must they help in prayer? Why ought they to help in prayer? Does he say that if more and more people pray, God will change his mind and do something he never would have done otherwise? No. That's not the reason Paul gives. No. So that... When God answers, as more and more and more people have been moved to pray, when God answers, there's therefore more people who are going to give him praise for the answer. That he is glorified and honored at the lips and by the lips of more people, a larger congregation, based on how many people prayed for what he did. It's for his glory. It's for his honor. It's that we would praise and adore him at his work. Now I want to say again here, does God do things that he would otherwise not have done if people hadn't prayed? I don't know. I don't know. This is honestly where untangling sovereignty and prayer becomes difficult and impossible at times for us. Because if the texts we read on God's sovereignty are true, He's leading His people, guiding His people to pray. So He's doing that and then answering, and yet at the same time we have these scriptures that are inerrant from the perspective of the people that are saying, pray so that He will do this. I'm not saying we're robots. 
there are, there are those who harden their hearts, who resist the Lord's call, who resist the call to pray, who have no desire to pray. God is good and loving and gracious and merciful, and yet we are slow to listen. Just keep being led to pray for God's care for your leaders. In His infinite, glorious mind, He has it figured out. He knows how these things work together. He knows how our asking and His sovereignty work perfectly together. Romans 15, 30-32, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. What are the areas of care that your leaders need from God? Pray. Pray for God's care for them. Secondly, pray for their character. Pray for us, the writer says, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I would encourage you, as you consider praying for your leaders, read 1 Timothy 3, 1-7. through 7. Read Titus chapter 1, verses 5-9. through 9. Those texts give the qualifications for elders in the church. Pray that for them. Consider 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, and Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 35. Those are two texts that unpack the responsibilities given to elders. Pray for them. Pray for their character. Pray that their conscience would be clear in those things. Pray that that they would act honorably in all of those things and all of those ways. Pray that your leaders will be those who are of good character, who fulfill the calling which they have been called to do, that there will be vision and there will be faithfulness in the way that they lead. Hebrews 13 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Pray that your leaders will be like those the writer of Hebrews is referring to. That you can consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Those who, when you do consider the outcome of their lives, you want to imitate their faith. Pray for their character. Third, pray for their confidence in the gospel. Pray for their confidence in the gospel. Paul writes in Romans 1.16, most of us know this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes the Jew first and also to the Greek. No leader in any church has a drop of hope in leading faithfully if they have lost confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
It and it alone is the power of God for salvation. Paul said to the Corinthian church, for I've decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Verse 5. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says in Galatians that he confronted Peter. Why? Because it seemed that he was acting in a way that demonstrated that he had lost confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those in leadership are desperate for the gospel of Jesus. And I assure you, I assure you, at some point in their ministry, your pastor or elder will be tempted to depend on something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. That there will be things that come along in ministry worries and concerns and a plan for growth will seem more enticing than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray. Pray for their confidence in the gospel. Pray that their confidence would be firmly fixed on what alone is the power of God for salvation. I remember... Um, Francis Chan once saying uh, to a group, if you give me a band and a sound system, I could grow any church in America. Any kind of church. It doesn't even have to be Christian. I could, we can get a gathering of people together just with good music and a good articulate speaker could do that. But it's going to be really embarrassing on the day of judgment. <laughs> and really humbling. And really scary. Apart from the gospel, this work is fruitless. You consider what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is not risen from the dead, this is... This is fruitless. It's, this is vain. This is futile. It's pointless. We, we ought to not gather. There's no reason for this apart from the gospel that Jesus died and he rose again. That alone is our security and our hope. So pray. Pray for confidence in the gospel of Jesus. And then lastly, pray for their confession and conversions. Pray for fruit. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. Pray that the confession of faith would go forth from your leaders, that it would, as Paul says, Speed ahead. I love that. That the word of the Lord, that the confession of faith, that the gospel of Jesus would speed ahead. That there would be fruit. Again, we see him asking for their care from God, that they would be delivered from wicked and evil men. The main desire there is that, that the word would go forth 
Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, Paul writes, Continue steadfastly in prayer. Keep praying and praying and praying, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Now going back to what I said at the beginning of this sermon, there are things that certainly I'm preaching that are wrong. There was a time that I said to people, and I'm sure it entered a sermon somewhere, You don't need to pray for an open door to tell people about the gospel. Just do it. Just go up and talk to people and share the gospel. I was wrong. See how easy that was? It's not wrong to pray for an open door. That's what Paul's asking for. Pray that people would have an opening for gospel presentation. Paul asked that people would pray for him that way. If we're praying that, we want to be ready to walk through the door. But it's a good and biblical thing that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ. Pray that for your leaders. And that in that, that they would make the confession clear. That their confidence in the gospel would come through in a clear message. That it would be gospel. Ephesians 6, 18 and 19, Paul says, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. For those of you who have grown up in the church and you've, you're used to hearing the gospel message, it, it is easy to forget that it is nonsense to the world. That, that's Paul's words, okay? So don't, don't think I'm accusing the gospel. It's foolishness, he says, to the world. It is foolishness to go up to someone and say, you, self-confident, accomplished so much in your life, person, you're lost. You're a sinner. And God hates sin. But, I want to tell you, you can't do anything to earn your way to salvation. That's completely contrary to everything we think as humans. We earn everything. We work our way towards everything. And so to say to someone, no, this is the gospel. That someone stepped in for you. He was perfect. He never did the things that you do every day. He was holy. He was righteous. He was the only person ever undeserving of punishment in any way. And he took the worst punishment that will ever be handed out. For you. 
And if you just trust in him, if you believe in him, then not only is he counted for your sake, but you are counted righteous because of him. He was treated on the cross as if he lived the way you lived. And then you're treated from that day forward as if you've lived the way that Jesus lived. You guys, that is glorious, wonderful gospel truth that apart from 2 Corinthians 4, 6, the God has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Apart from the truth of that verse, it would be foolishness to us. That's Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 4. The God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers, so they can't see that. But God, who said, let light shine in darkness, has said that to our hearts. Pray. Pray for your leaders that God would open a door for the gospel. Pray for their confession and pray for conversion. That words would be given in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, Paul says. Pray for your leaders. They need it. Leaders are not superhuman Christians who have stopped being tempted, who are never fearful to say things. I assure you, there are meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting with Taylor and myself talking about the weight of some of the things we're going to say. We're never fearful to say them. Who have everything together and don't need care or encouragement. Your leaders are human, just as human as you are, and they struggle with things just like you do. Pray for them. Pray for their care. Pray for their character. Pray for their confidence in the gospel. Pray for their confession and for conversions. And see what God does. Not only in their lives, but in your own heart. And as you pray, trust Him and His sovereign purposes and believe. In, in Philemon, verse 22, I, I think there's such a wonderful balance of asking for prayer and trusting in the Lord's sovereignty in the midst of asking for prayer and how we ought to respond to that balance. Paul writes to Philemon, at the same time, prepare a guest room for us, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Prepare a room for us, because I'm hoping that through your prayers we'll be restored to you. Now, where's confidence there? 100% completely in the Lord. It's this attitude that we know that God is good either way. This is my hope, and so I'll be ready. 